Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, January 28th, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writers Y. Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right, HT, let's jump right into the news and talk a little bit about Netflix's uh, adaptation of The Sandman. There has been some casting news on that front. Tell us what we need to know. Yeah, Netflix has announced the lead cast for the Sandman TV series, which is being uh, executive produced by Neil Gaiman, the author of the original graphic novel series, which was a hugely widely influential uh, comic book series that um, from that was published by DC Comics. So Tom Sturridge, who we had reported on before as being in, the, in talks to play Dream, the Lord of Dreaming, aka Morpheus, uh, has been announced as a lead. And he's joined by Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer, um, Vivian Archipong Arch, Arch, as Lucien, the chief librarian and trusted guardian of Dream's Realm, Boyd Holbrook as the Corinthian, an escaped nightmare who wishes to taste all the world has in store. Charles Dance as Roderick Burgess, a charlatan blackmailer and magician. And lastly, Sanjeev Beskar and Asim Chaudhry as Cain and Abel, the first victim and first predator of the Dream Realm, respectively. So this is the um, confirmation of Sturridge, as well as the news that Gwendolyn Christie is playing a gender-bent Lucifer. Lucifer has previously been portrayed as a man in the comics and also in the <laughs> the spinoff comic, which inspired the Netflix uh, procedural TV series that originally was on a network I forgot. I think it's Fox. I can't remember. Um, but uh that, and also the casting of Boyd Holbrook as Corinthian, which we had reported on previously as uh, Zachary Montgomery was being eyed for that role, as well as another actor who I can't remember off the top of my head right now. But uh, the Corinthian will be played by Boyd Holbrook, who is of Narcos and um, Logan fame and uh, is in an upcoming Sundance movie, which you watched, I know, Van Pearson. Oh, yeah. Do, do people like Boyd Holbrook? Every time I see him in something, I'm like, do people like this guy? I just don't, I don't see it. He's seems like one of those actors that, pe- that people are like, we got to put Boyd Holbrook in this. And I'm just like, eh, I don't know. He doesn't seem like he's got it to me. When, when the news broke this morning, I literally was reading the news out loud to my wife 
uh, who's never read Sandman. And I get to Boyd Holbrook. I said, do you like Boyd Holbrook? She says, oh, I don't know who that is. Let me look him up. And she looked him up and said, oh, yeah, I like him. So I think I think I think people may like Boyd Holbrook, Chris. They just maybe they just yeah maybe it's just me. I maybe I'm the only anti Boyd Holbrook person out there. Sorry, Boyd. <laughs> he hasn't made a big impression on me, but I always like him enough in the stuff that I've seen him in. I remember him being good in Logan, and um, I feel like here he it'll it'll be interesting to see how he plays off his sort of you know classic leading man good looks in playing a character who is one of the most ruthless and uh, sinister characters of the Sandman mythos. So it'll be, I think that'll be a good way to play off against his classic good looks. Uh, well, I said classic good looks, typical good looks, I guess you would say. Uh, Chris, have you read the Sandman? I haven't. It's one of those things I really want to read, but it feels like it's so big and sprawling. I'm like overwhelmed. And also I like, I want it to be in like one thing. I want like one big book. And I know there is like an absolute Sandman, but it costs like $500 or something like that. So no is the answer. I have not read this yet. You're in luck, Chris. The best way to do this uh, is that they've released, I think, two omnibuses, which are like 100 bucks, 125 bucks each. But like, uh, and but they include the entire series at this point. Uh, but it only is 70 issues. I mean, there are spinoffs. They can be the core 70 and have the complete story from beginning to end. And this HG and I talked about the Corinthian, prob- probably the scariest combo character of, of all time. Like a, a, a genuine horror like creation that like blows my mind every time I reread it. You should read the Sandman at, um, up to the Corinthian. He's, he's in volume two, just so you can have an opinion on this casting. I, I, I really, I think the Sandman would be your shit, Chris. I think I mean, it's yeah, so I, up your alley, Chris. I, I love Neil Gaiman. I just have just never gotten around. I need like, I need like one Christmas my mom is like, what do you want for Christmas? I'm just going to be like, get me this big Sandman thing. Then I'll finally have excuse. I'll have no more excuses and I'll read it. <laughs> uh, can we dwell quickly on Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer, uh, who is drawn originally in the comic? Because yes, we're talking about the, 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 the ruler of hell is in the Sandman comics, uh, where he's drawn as being rather androgynous, actually looking like a 70s era David Bowie or uh, in many uh, uh, illustrations. And I love that this is sort of the Tilda Swinton in Constantine-esque androgynous female casting of a quote-unquote male character because uh, there's something ethereal about Gwendolyn Christie and how she just looks like she belongs on a different plane of existence. And I think this is such inspired casting. Uh, I mean, overall, they've turned uh, Lucien into Lucienne, you know, a, fem- a male character into a female character. And they've turned all, a lot of the, all these white characters into people of color. It's it really is an acknowledgement that the Sandman universe, as vast as it was, was very much trapped in you know a male-dominated white comic book uh, from the 1990s. So this is all really inspired and cool casting. It really suggests that the Sandman world is being opened up, uh, and, and in a way that bodes really well for everyone else who's going to be cast in this show. Yeah, I'm really, really excited about Gwendolyn Christie for exactly the reasons that you said. I think it's inspired, and I think that it's taking a page from Constantine's book by casting Gwendolyn Christie in a very Tilda Swinton as as Gabriel type of casting, playing up in her androgynous looks uh, in a way that's just really exciting and cool, and I'm just really happy about it. Although, uh, Jacob, you did note uh, that because the the uh, Netflix Lucifer series is ongoing, they un- unfortunately can't do a spinoff with Gwendolyn Christie's Lucifer based on the comic spinoff um, that the TV series is based on. Yeah, Lucifer gets his own comic spinoff and in, in, uh, in the Vertigo also published, uh, Vertigo being the DC imp- uh, imprint that Samuel was published under, which was 
Lucifer's uh, adventures in Los Angeles away from hell. And it was great. Uh, so I would like them to quietly bury the current Lucifer series so they can reboot it with Gwendolyn Christie. I, I, I guess not to keep this talk of this going too long, but I guess my only other question is, does Neil Gaiman actually translate to screen? Because I love Neil Gaiman's writing, but every time there's an adaptation of his work, it, it just seems to like fall on its face. Like, American Gods, that show started off really well, and then it went completely into the toilet. And Stardust, I don't, I know people like that movie, but it's like nothing compared to the, the book. And I, I, I kind of have this this sinking feeling that Neil Gaiman is one of those writers who just his work doesn't translate to the screen very well. And I don't know if I'm I'm alone in that opinion or not. I don't think you're alone. I think it's a, a genuine fear, and one why the reasons why I was hesitant to be excited about Sandman and, until this casting, uh, because. It's one of those comics that feels written and designed to be a comic. It's paced for how you read a comic book as opposed to how you're paced for a movie. So I don't know. And I, I, I'm worried you're correct, Chris. But I think this casting is so interesting that it makes me yeah. want to give it a chance. Because this is casting. I, I've seen some people already complaining on the internet about, oh, they've changed all these male characters and the female characters. Or why he was white in the comic. Why is a black woman in here? Like, oh, first of all, shut the F up. Uh, <laughs> Uh, second of all, it's such a keen, it, it represents such a keen understanding of how how pop culture has evolved and what we want out of pop culture. And if Gaiman can recognize that in the casting, I think he can recognize that in the, in the storytelling as well. And fingers crossed that he's not so stubborn as to say no to any changes that would you know, make this into a better TV show as opposed to being what, what works great on the page. I just want to say, I want to chime in too that I'm anxious as well about a new, another live action adaptation of a Neil Gaiman work because his work just sings so much on the page. Um, but I think that the audio drama on Audible um, that adapted the Sandman comics uh, was really successful and was sort of the template I think that they're using going forth for the Netflix live action adaptation. I don't think it's a coincidence that the, the news for for example, the Sandman Audible having two new seasons on the same day as the Netflix casting is a coincidence. I think it's uh, I think they're very much using it to sort of chart the path for the Netflix series. And having seen another Neil Gaiman adaptation uh, that I actually liked, Good Omens, and that mostly relying on the strength of its core cast, David Tennant and Michael Sheen, I think a good cast can take a Neil Gaiman story a long way. So let's... Let's hope. Yes, let's hope. So, um, I, I, Chris, while you were uh, asking about Boyd Holbrook, I looked up his filmography, and uh, he was in this movie called In the Shadow of the Moon that we talked about from 2019. I thought he was pretty good in that. Um, I don't remember if you have specific feelings on that. It was like a Netflix. I reviewed script. it, but I oh, okay. I don't really. Uh, I I don't think he's bad. I just he just seems like he's like Jai Courtney and who's that other one? Yeah, uh, Sam, uh, Sam, Sam Worthington. Yeah, he just he strikes me as like. Too. Like bland, good-looking guy who doesn't really. It's like I was like, why is this guy a star? I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer. <laughs> uh, hopefully, he he maybe proves himself. In, now, all, uh, now all the the Boyd fans are gonna write in and ask for my I, head. I will say the character as written that he's playing is intended to be a. a, a bland person who can sort of ease in and out of any room that he's in so you know what maybe it's all intentional maybe yeah 
All right, let's move on to our next topic, which is uh, there's a Game of Thrones animated series that is in development. According to a report from last night uh, or yesterday afternoon, The Hollywood Reporter says that a Game of Thrones animated show that is going to be like an R-rated uh, adult-leaning drama series is in the works uh, at HBO Max, not, not HBO, which is interesting because so far all of the Game of Thrones and Game of Thrones adjacent properties have been in development at HBO proper, but this animated show is evidently in development at HBO Max, the new streaming site, so or streaming service. So um, I don't know if I don't know what the deal is there, why they they think that the animated version of this uh, property will work better on in streaming than on uh, you know on the traditional HBO, but that's what we have um, in terms of details. Things are very very slim. We don't really know anything about even what time period or what area of Westeros this is going to be exploring or anything like that. Um, no writers or directors or uh, talent is attached in any way. It's very early in the process. They're just like having meetings with writers and stuff. Um, we think that uh, George R. R. Martin is going to be involved because he's been, you know, very hands-on in terms of helping HBO craft and, and sort of expand the, the Game of Thrones world on screen. So he'll probably at the very least get, an executive producer credit at, at most maybe be like, you know, credited as like the creator and, and be like deeply involved with the show. Um, so uh, Game of Thrones animated series. I mean, to me, this sounds like it has a lot of potential. Um, I love the idea of like uh, using animation for stuff that's, you know, just beyond uh, storytelling aimed at children. And Game of Thrones is very, I mean, anybody who watched the show knows the the possibilities here of like what kind of storytelling they could engage in and obviously the the uh budgets and stuff like that you know uh got bigger in the live action series as it went on and the dragon visual effects got more impressive but in animation i mean the sky's the limit in terms of what you can physically depict on screen so um ht you uh did not finish the entirety of game of thrones but i know that you're like familiar with that world what do you make uh, and and also you're a big animation fan what do you think about the idea of a uh an animated Game of Thrones show. You know, at first I was a little apathetic to the idea of more Game of Thrones properties, especially after the lackluster ending of Game of Thrones, which I didn't watch because I stopped watching halfway through. Um, but yeah, I was really involved in the world for a long time and I'm still a big fan of the Song of Ice and Fire um, like series. Uh, but I will say this actually just occurred to me as you were talking. I think HBO did do some animated um, sequence or something that was like re released in a blu-ray um mm -hmm. thing yeah I, I embedded that uh, there's a clip of that in the article basically the it, it's it's kind of like um i'm trying to describe how it's it's almost like storyboard animation like very sort of um uh not fluid but like uh, little pieces that are sort of cut together and and um uh, man, well, I don't even know if that style of animation has a name, but it, it's very basic and and not. Uh, it's like shadow puppetry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, the, those there are several um, you know videos like that that were created specifically for the home video releases, going into some of the history of Westeros and covering a whole bunch of topics that um, that yeah I, I embedded one of those in this article. So if you want to see like sort of what they could do um, as a very very you know, basic version. And then obviously 
whatever actually ends up will be much more involved than what exists uh, as it is. But yeah, go on. Yeah, I remember really liking those um, releases, like that diving further into the history of Westeros outside of the main saga and kind of going into the the lore and the world. And I remember re- being really intrigued by those and wanting to see more of that kind of style as well. So I would be interested to see uh, maybe something that doesn't have to do with the the main story as we saw in Game of Thrones and no more Targaryens because we're getting plenty of that too with I think another prequel series coming on HBO. Mm-hmm. Um I I mean my my big my big wish for an adaptation really is the fall the the Doom of Valyria, which is kind of Targaryen stuff, but I really like the idea of seeing that story uh, on the screen in some way because it's sort of the Song of Ice and Fire world's version of the um, the fall of Atlantis meets the the um, the fall of Rome and I I just like to see that kind of crumbling of a civilization in a way that's like really big and mythic so that's mm-hmm. my dream um, but I'm also down I mean I'm I I do think the world of of, of Game of Thrones is so rich and so exciting and. Um, in animation form like I feel like they could maybe go too hard with the violence and gore but uh, if they do something akin to what we saw with those um, home video releases in that sort of shadow puppetry form slash meets like medieval canvases I think that would be really exciting and, and uh, intriguing Jacob what do you think obviously you're you're like the biggest uh, Game of Thrones fan among all of us here so what, what do you make of this I say bring it on I know there's been a conversation about amongst real people and the slash film staff but how Game of Thrones has vanished since the finale and as someone who will defend large portions of the final season um, I'm all for more Game of Thrones bring it all on I, I was reading those books before the show was around and I'm going I'm still a fan till my dying days uh, make me tired of it HBO I'm I'm not tired of it yet. Um, And I agree with HG. I was actually going to spring the doom of the doom that came to Valeria as (laughs) my pitch for a, for the animated show could be as well, because we're talking about a, a world that's actually more elaborate and expensive than the one we see in Westeros. This is an SOC, a a sprawling city full of dragons uh, and something terrible happened to it. And nobody knows what within the, the context of the current timeline. So I think that's a very, rich place to explore all of this in animation so i i say bring on more game of thrones uh feed me all the spinoffs i'm not tired of it yet uh i'm that guy <laughs> well speaking of spinoffs uh our next story involves a sort of spinoff of uh the bram stoker dracula story chris give us an update on the last voyage of the demeter uh, yeah, so this is something that's been kicking around for at least 17 years. This this project has been in development. And uh, now it looks like it, it might finally be be moving forward. Um, Andre Overdahl, I might be saying his name wrong, but he's the guy who directed uh, The Autopsy of Jane Doe and uh, The Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark movie. He's been attached uh, since, I think, last year to direct it or maybe... Yeah, at least last year. And now it's been revealed that uh, Corey Hawkins, who was in Straight Outta Compton and Kong Skull Island, and also that 24 reboot that I feel like everyone forgot about, uh, he's going to be in the movie. Uh, We don't really know who he's playing. Um, uh, As for the movie itself, it's based on one chapter in Dracula where Dracula uh, sails from Transylvania to England. Uh, this, this story has been in pretty much most of the Dracula movie adaptations. So if you've seen a Dracula movie, you kind of know what the story is where basically Dracula is hiding out in, in the cargo hold of the ship in, in a box of earth. 
and he keeps sneaking out of his box to uh, murder the crew. And by the time the ship does end up in England, all the crew have vanished. And the only person left on the ship is the captain who is also dead. And he's lashed himself to the wheel. And uh, everyone's like, ah, this is mysterious. And then Dracula comes to town and starts sucking blood. So uh, unless they're going to change a lot of the story, um, basically this is a movie where every character is going to die except Dracula. So I guess we'll see how that turns out. So Chris, how do you think they're going to um, expand on that story? Because as presented in the book, it's very short and, and you know, it's creepy uh, because I think you're reading like the, maybe the captain's log or something like that to, to understand what happened. Um, But it seems a little thin for a full movie, doesn't it? So, yes. I mean, they're they're definitely got to expand it. You know, well, they'll have to give us more characters who are on the ship and all this stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised if they change it. And there's like one person who survives. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that they'll expand it a bit, but I think you could have this has potential for like, you know, a one location movie, entire movie on a ship. Basically, it could be like, you know, Master and Commander, but with Dracula. Imagine that movie. That would be really cool. (laughs) Oh, man. I love the idea of like them setting sail and like, you know, the audience not even fully knowing maybe like never even seeing Dracula for like the first half of the movie or something. Just people just start mysteriously dying. And then like you slowly realize what what's going on. Um, even though I guess we've just ruined it for everybody by giving a, a, a blow by blow of exactly what happens in the book. But yeah, well, uh, you know, it's not like it's, it's not, but you know, that book has been around since the 1800s. Right. So it's not, like we're, we're, we're not spoiling it too much. Yes. Uh, Jacob, I know you're a fan of, uh, of the Dracula story. What do you think about this? Uh, I love this because my favorite parts of Dracula are the ones that kind of exist in the margins. Like how the last chunk of the book is a manhunt across Europe with like where uh, a bunch of characters are like just chasing Dracula, like in a literal chase using trains and horses to try to beat him to his castle. And it, it tells a, a, a story in the margins. That's what I love about this concept is that uh, in a few like pages, we, we see the aftermath of something and the idea of being, being able to explore the aftermath is what, is the kind of Dracula stuff I want because we've seen the popular beats told so many times. Mm-hmm. And uh, Andre Overdahl is a, uh, he's such an, an interesting director. His most recent movie, uh, Mortal, nobody saw, but um, the autopsy of Jane Doe and Trollhunter are, from my, my mind, like instant classics. And he can really create dread and like uh, blend that dread with like really effective, like monster storytelling. So I don't know what his Dracula looks like, but I. I do know this is a, a combination of things like a fringe Dracula moments plus Andre Overdahl plus period horror is some is my jam. And I don't know what the structure of this is. I know they've been developing this for nearly 20 years. I remember reading about this project in high school, like in computer lab. Um, but I, I will say there's a video game called the return of the Obra Dinn, uh, which is about, you play an insurance investigator who is investigating a, uh, a, a merchant vessel that has returned uh, and something very bad happened on it. And you investigate the ship and you find new pieces of evidence and you sort of sort of flashbacks and you fill in the, the the book in the game to learn what happened to the entire crew. And I would love to see maybe that being the framing device here of the ship arrives in port, everybody's dead, what happened. And as people look into it, we see the mystery unfold. I don't know, maybe that's what, kind of the first thing that popped my brain is about how the story could be told in an interesting way. But who knows? <laughs> I haven't read the script. Um, Ishi, I know you've read Dracula as well. Do you have any thoughts about this? I had honestly forgotten about this little segment before you brought it up and Chris described it again. And I remember liking it a lot, but it's also something that I feel like it was done so well in establishing Dracula as a formidable 
a character and villain and a force to be reckoned with um, that I don't know if there's anything more to add to it. I It did occur to me uh, with Andre, uh, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce his name. O- Overdahl, I think. Overdahl, yeah. uh, involved that they could frame it as um, just like a, a, not a haunted house movie, but you know, a, a haunted ship movie where like all these shipmates are on and like everyone's disappearing and they don't know what's happening uh, with Dracula as that creature lurking in the darkness. Um, what, which I feel like would be the easy way of, of framing it. And I don't know if it would be exactly very interesting, but I feel like that is what, that's the impression I'm getting from the story uh, as few details as we know. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's move on to our next story, which uh, involves Bridgerton. Has anybody here uh, given Bridgerton a chance yet? Just uh, out of curiosity. Nope. Nobody. All right. Uh, well, uh, we are in the minority, apparently, because according to Netflix, a record 82 million households watched the show in its first 28 days on the service, which means that it has become Netflix's biggest show. And uh, according to the the math, Netflix now has like over 200, just over 200 million users worldwide. And evidently, uh, 41% of all accounts have watched the show. And of course, really the only reason I'm bringing this up is because you've probably seen a lot of headlines about how Bridgerton is now Netflix's biggest show. And I just wanted to, you know, we we laid this out in the article, but I want to lay it out in podcast form as well. Anytime Netflix does this, um, we just, I feel like we have to call them out on the, the super shady way that they release uh, viewership data and information because what they count as a view is literally just if somebody watches something for two minutes and then that's it. Like if you, if you tap out at two minutes and one second, uh, if you, if you tried the first episode of Bridgerton and watched it for four minutes and then bailed, you are among these people that Netflix is now touting as, you know, like making Bridgerton the smash hit success. And I don't want to, you know, take away from like the quality of Bridgerton. I actually haven't seen it, but I've heard some good things about it. Um, and, and you know, th- they do this all the time, Netflix. They did it with Extraction last year, that Chris Hemsworth action movie. They said that 99 million people watched that movie, but like they don't provide any of the data about the completion percentage and, and how many people actually, you know, watched the whole thing all the way through to the end or or even half of it or whatever. They're just <laughs> two minutes and that's it. So it's basically just a way to like, boost their impressions in terms of like, you know, investors and stuff like that. Um, And again, I I don't want this to be like, uh, you know, to seem like I'm shitting on Bridgerton or anything because that's not what's happening. But, and I know that it's popular because a lot of people are talking about it, but uh, I just feel like we have to provide that context anytime Netflix, you know, brings out the trumpets and like makes a big deal about any of this stuff. It's just, it's not quite as, uh, as cut and dried as like some of these headlines might see if, if you're just like scrolling through Twitter and see like, you know, 10 different headlines that are like, oh, Bridgerton's now the biggest show on Netflix. What, what does that really mean? Nobody knows. It's all just sort of marketing bullshit. So uh, anyway, yes, I just wanted to go on that rant for a second. So <laughs> uh, let's go on to our last news item of the day, which involves a reboot of a, a very old film franchise. Well, not very old, but within the last, what, 20 years or something. Uh, Chris, tell us about uh, what uh, Hollywood is rebooting next. Spy Kids, Ben. They're rebooting <laughs> Spy Kids. And, you know, I have to eat some crow here because... Um, Right before the new Robert Rodriguez family-friendly film, um, what's it called? We Can Be Heroes hit Netflix. Robert Rodriguez gave an interview with Entertainment Weekly, and he was like, studios are always calling me up, and they're like, you should reboot Spy Kids, and you should reboot Shark Boy. And I was like, 
No, they're not. But I look like an asshole now because that exactly is that's exactly what's happening. Um, Skydance is moving ahead with a, a Spy Kids reboot, and Robert Rodriguez is coming back to write and direct it. Uh, and you know, there were a bunch of spy kids movies back, back in the day. And they were about a family of spies and I never saw any of them, but I know they have, they have their fans. And I uh, want to say I saw all of them. Did you, did you <laughs> like them all? Were you a big spy I kids did, fan? I did like them all. I was a big spy kids fan and you know, I was the same age as the spy kids when they came out. So, you know, I related so to you, them hard. You wanted to be a spy kid. I you wanted to like, be a spy kid, although I didn't have spy parents or, you know, um <laughs> that you know of for all you know, know they they're still <laughs> undercover and... <laughs> but i just think they remember uh like this is a, a fact that no one's gonna care about but i had i remember that the, it came about when during like the, my family switch from vhs to dvd because i had both a vhs version of spy kids and a dvd of spy kids wow. so that's that's how much i like spy kids i guess are you excited about the, this this reboot then, HC? Are you all in on the Spy Kids reboot? I mean, not particularly because... <laughs> wow, you sold them out that quickly. Yeah. <laughs> because I have very much aged out of that uh, yeah. time, uh, that age range, but... You're a, you're a spy adult now. You're I'm not a spy, spy adult, kid. I know. I'm a spy woman. <laughs> yes. Um, but I'm happy for the new generation of kids who get to experience Spy Kids. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I, you know, I'm not really interested in this. Although HJ, I also did watch at least the first Spy Kids, and I remember specifically seeing Spy Kids 3D in theaters when that came out in 2003 because uh, Sylvester Stallone was the bad guy, and I was in a, a big Stallone phase at that point. And the movie, I mean, it came out in 3D. I think the it, the 3D at that time was still like the uh, the red and blue uh, paper glasses instead of like actual you know like james cameron approved 3d um so robert rodriguez always a little bit ahead of the curve i feel like as a as a filmmaker um and you know yes i have not seen the rest of the spy kids franchise or uh any of his like family friendly stuff that he's been doing but a part of me is kind of happy that this is happening even though it does seem on the surface just like you know, a, a craven uh, attempt to exploit existing intellectual property. But the same thing that you just said, HC, like I'm excited for a new generation of kids to to have something like this. And I think even even We Can Be Heroes, which I didn't see, but ended up writing a little piece about uh, one of the featurettes that they released. Robert Rodriguez just feels like one of those filmmakers that is like an inspiring uh, figure to up and coming and aspiring uh, directors and, and people who want to make movies. I remember reading his book when I was uh, in high school about how he uh, made El Mariachi for a very small amount of money and like sold his plasma to, to get the budget to make that movie and, and like basically just explained beat by beat how he did this stuff. And it felt like he was um, was like pulling the curtain back on Hollywood in a big way. And even that recent We Can Be Heroes featurette where he's like talking about uh, how the visual effects were done in that movie. Um, he talks, he, he like addresses it to kids and it, it just seems like he's one of the few people who, um, doesn't, uh, sort of hide behind the, the, uh, I don't know, like the, the majesty that, that you sometimes associate with Hollywood and filmmaking. He really like demystifies the process. And I feel like the idea of him returning to this franchise that he created, uh, because it was like filling a gap that, that, um, 
you know, existed at that time uh, with a multicultural family and all that kind of stuff. Like the idea of him coming back to this and potentially inspiring a new group of kids uh, to make movies and, and get into filmmaking and all that kind of stuff, I think is, is a good thing. So um, I don't know, Jacob, do you have any uh, relationship to the Spy Kids uh, franchise or Rodriguez as a filmmaker? I mean, in 2001, Spy Kids was interesting because it was a really exciting filmmaker uh, turning around and making a kid's movie. And 20 years later, Robert Rodriguez is now the least exciting man making movies. And I think he has sucked for 20 years. At least 15. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, I cannot get even remotely excited about, about a current Rod- Rodriguez project. The man uh, phones it in behind the camera. Um, and Wow. Okay. All right. He, uh, I, I genuinely think he's one of the great broken promises of all modern cinema. And I cannot feel good about this in any way whatsoever. Well, uh, I don't really know how to come back from that one, folks. So I think that's uh, we're just going to leave on a uh, sorry on a weird note here. Um, two diametrically opposed opinions, but uh, that's totally fine. I mean, I, I can't speak to the quality of uh, Robert Rodriguez's recent filmography. I'm just trying to talk about him as a uh, you know a, a figure. But um, yes, anyway, so there's that. Everybody can look forward to the Spy Kids reboot. HC will not watch it because she's a spy woman. I think we're all. We're all good here. So uh, that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. This show is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, mailbag questions, topics like that to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air don't forget to rate and review the podcast on apple Podcasts. we'd really appreciate that tell your friends spread the word thank you for listening and we will talk to you all tomorrow